You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hello. It's good to be here on Tov with you. This is John Spiris Avet, and hey, Rebecca. Hi. Nice to be here again. Hey, Rebecca Rosenthal. And we're talking about Chapter 11, which is called What's My Motivation? And I love the episode, and I love the theme also. I said very much at the top of the podcast in our first recording that mixed motivations is like part of what this whole podcast is about for me. I'm motivated partly by by envy. I can't believe that these people who have like all the resources of television can do this teaching about moral philosophy and in like beautiful color and uh, and with a great ensemble and they can uh, make ideas be so funny and at the same time they're brilliant. And so I'm totally just wanting to uh, take a ride on that and see if we can reach people with Jewish stuff by that way. Uh, I don't think I'm motivated, especially by like the desire to be famous as a podcaster, although I wouldn't refuse <laughs> that. And I'm totally not speaking for Rebecca, who I'm sure has only pure motivations. <laughs> My motivations are only to learn Torah forever and ever. <laughs> That's why I want to hang out with you. <laughs> So I also enjoy hanging out with my friends uh, on podcasts, and this is just such a good episode. I, I, when you sent out the list, I knew that this was one of the ones that I wanted, and I, even when I watched it again, I didn't remember all the amazing parts about it. Um, but I, I love this one mostly for the end of this episode, which we could talk about closer to the end of the podcast. But it's just there's so many great like lines and moments and things that happen in this episode. So it's a good one. So again, it's called What's My Motivation? Do you want to read, Rebecca, the summary? Sure. After Michael shares all the point totals of everyone in the good place, Tahani helps Eleanor work on earning points by being kind to everyone so they can make the case to Sean that Eleanor should stay. When it doesn't work, Eleanor realizes that her motivation is corrupt and only for self-preservation. And the only option is to sacrifice herself in some way. Chidi is unable to respond to real Eleanor's declaration of love because he is unsure of his own motivation for saying, I love you back. Michael discovers Jason's true identity after he and Janet reveal that they are married. In flashbacks, we see how Jason died in a safe while trying to rob a restaurant with his friend Pillboy. Sean arrives, and just as Eleanor is about to turn herself in, Janet offers an alternative option, the medium place, and they escape with Jason on Sean's train. All right. So you were saying so many good lines and things like that. Any Anything to fan Rav over in this episode? Well, you know, the beginning when Chidi says to real Eleanor, which is it's funny to call her real Eleanor because of what <laughs> we learn about her later. But when he says to real Eleanor, well, your point total is crazy high, Eleanor. And Ele- uh, Kristen Bell Eleanor says crazy high, Eleanor. That's what they used to call me. Um, so that part, that was pretty funny. And then uh, when Jason and Pillboy are talking about Jacksonville and he says, it's one of the top 10 swamp c- cities in <laughs> northeastern Florida. I thought that was pretty funny. I thought uh, Chidi and Eleanor's morning hard boiled egg routine. And she says, I don't know what I love more, the eggs or the routine. Um, but that was great. And I, I related to that because I think I would like if I just knew what I was going to eat for breakfast and maybe for every meal every day. But breakfast is always this meal where I go in the kitchen and I'm like, 
what am I going to eat today? As though I have <laughs> new options or options I don't know about. I, I buy all the food. I know about the options. And somehow every morning it's like, well, today, what am I going to eat? Um, so I thought that that was, I appreciated that moment. And then I just like, I love the end when they reveal the idea of the medium place and you know Mindy St. Clair and the idea that the, the medium place exists. It really moves the show forward in a way that um, we haven't seen as dramatically in a couple of episodes. That's cool. And I think knowing as we do what's coming up with the medium place and Mindy makes it like even better to see that teased right here. I think that oh, people- and my, my, yeah. I, I will say one other great line was when they're talking about terrible things in the world. And I, I didn't write down which character says this, but they say genocide and leggings as pants. <laughs> and I felt personally attacked because for this whole two years, we've all been wearing leggings as pants, okay? <laughs> you know, it's not as bad as you might've thought. <laughs> There's, <laughs> if you watch the bloopers, that like the blooper reel, I don't know that genocide and leggings is on it, but um, I know that they do like uh, for some other things, this kind of thing. I think in improv, it's called the like line orama or something where they just try to play the same joke with different with different words in it. I thought actually that like that was um, Tahani's thing about uh, conflict resolution, which is when, it, when she had to mediate between what is it? My friend's scary, sporty, posh, and baby, and my other friend, Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Anyway, she said it so fast without stumbling over it. And I could just imagine like a Mad Libs where you have to <laughs> combine two totally different things like that. Janet has so many of the good lines in this episode. At, um, early on when she and Jason are trying to kiss and she says something like, uh, was that enough tongue? I could make more tongues. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that, that is a good line. See, you won't hear your rabbi talk about that all the time. I love that crazy high Eleanor thing at the beginning, even though like you could so know it was coming, like it's exactly the joke you would know is coming. And uh, and even after watching it for like the fourth time in a row, I just laughed. And um, I I was noticing when Chidi and uh, real Eleanor, when she says, I love you, or he see, or she see, he sees the, the note or whatever, and she explains that it's not like to the egg. <laughs> but, he says, I love you too, egg. <laughs> yes, which is great. And then when she says, no, not the egg. And he does this, you know, oh, like he has such a very specific um, oh, which has about, you know, if you drew it on a musical staff, it have about six or seven different things with with ties. And oh, it was so it was so brilliant. And, you know, I, I wondered about that moment, though, like he didn't really think it was for the egg, right? Like he <laughs> he knew and he's just sort of buying time in this awkward way that he doesn't know what to do and so he pretends like it's for the egg right i don't think it's actually he thinks the egg is professing its love for for him yeah and totally i think we'll come to this and we talk about the theme but this i mean i i'm now as you're saying that realizing that chidi is like a guy who really has to have a specific motivation and understand it before he can do anything like even smile in response to a cute fortune egg. I also love that Janet, Janet is the source of the genocide and uh, leggings as pants thing. But um, she also, uh, I thought that um, when she was explaining to Michael how it's possible she could have gotten married and she lists a number of, you know, considerations and then says, there is nothing in my protocol that specifically barred that from happening. <laughs> I feel like and, that's and, a, yeah. And we get, not my dad, not yeah. a girl. Yeah, multiple yeah. Multiple times. And it's funny all the time, even though you've heard the joke before. 
Yeah. And I do like we... the idea of, of Michael as Janet's dad, though. Like you could construct a whole interesting family tree there. I also like her line, like when she finally gets in Michael's face about um, wanting to reboot her to get rid of this situation. And she's like, goes all teenager and talks about, you know, when when she, when someone behaves in ways that run counter to how you were programmed to behave. <laughs> well delivered. Well delivered. I don't know if this is where we discover this, that like Pillboy... I think later we're going to learn that Pillboy seems to be both the name of Jason's friend, but also like his job. He's a he's a pill dispenser at a nursing home, but it's spelled P-I-L-L-B-O-I, -L -L I guess, like a, I don't know why I'm tickled by that. It's. <laughs> I, I saw that in the summary that you wrote and sent me, and I thought like, I wonder how he knows that's how it's spelled. I have seen that somewhere. So we we were just briefly talking for a couple of minutes before we pushed record that we've got a lot to say about motivation and some Jewish ideas on that. And and independently, I think we arrived at a first same text. I'll tell you the moment that it caught my attention and it made me think like, yes, this is the right text for this, which is Eleanor and Tahani are talking and Eleanor has a revelation that the moment everything started to go wrong was at the party. And so she says to Tahani, well, we just have to recreate the party. And so I can go and I can fix everything. Right. And on the one hand, I understand her impulse. You want to sort of turn back time and and try again and have and have it again. But of course, what we learn is that it's not possible to recreate everything uh, exactly the way it was before. But it did bring up, I think, for both of us, this text from Rambam from Maimonides that is, I believe, in Hilcho Chuva, where uh, Maimonides talks about. How do you know that someone has fully repented? How do you know that you they have done their tshuva? And his answer is they find themselves in the same situation and they make a different kind of choice. And that's a little bit what Eleanor is trying to do here, which is to find herself in the same situation and make a different choice. Except the issue really is that while her outward actions might be different, her motivation, as she says, continues to be self-preservation. That was her motivation at Tahani's party when she's trying frantically to cover up the things that she did wrong. And it continues to be her motivation while she's trying to be nice to people and get them to, well, she's trying to be nice to people and just get them to uh, get, get herself more points is her own self-preservation. She doesn't want to leave the good place. And so even if she's in the same situation and making different outward choices, somehow something connected to repentance and chuva has to do very much with her inward choices as well. Yeah, and the text from Maimonides actually spells out the different varieties of that same situation. And so it says, if you get in that same situation and you act differently because of chuva, and he contrasts that to doing it for two other motivations, one of which could be fear, like fear of consequences, which is totally what Eleanor is facing, or you just don't have the capacity to do that same wrong again. And this is that. So when you do it sort of out of a, a you know, a, a, I guess a non-corrupt, you know, pure, freely chosen motivation, then that's that's complete chuva. And but he then goes back and says, even if you sort of go back in a situation where you don't have the chance to go back and, and do it. It still kind of counts, even if you do this kind of incompletely or only in your head. 
And I, it's funny, I hadn't even noticed this part of the episode until I, I said, gee, we haven't talked about this text about what constitutes chuchuva in a while. And then when I went back, I was like, whoa, there it is. Same situation. And we don't in real life get a chance to recreate the exact same situation the way they do. The party from episode, it was episode one, right? The, the, the initial party at Tahani's that eventually led to all the things going wrong, like right away. So, you know, on the one, that's a very appealing um, purity of motivation kind of idea. It's so difficult to actually have. I'm trying to think of. I mean, is, <laughs> yeah. is that really a realistic way of looking at the world? That the only good we can do in the world is if our motivation is completely pure. And does that end up pushing people away from doing good in the world because mm. they feel like they aren't doing it for the right reasons or not everything is exactly as it should be or, or whatever. And I, I think about the fact that in our nursery school class and in every nursery school I've ever worked in, we have the kids bring in money for Sadaka. They don't know what money is. They have no sense of the value of money. They don't know anything. They like don't know anything about sort of like what's going on for other people in the world. They're literally like, oh, isn't it fun to put these coins in a box? That's a game. And what we do it to build the muscle for later on in their lives so that giving sadaka, giving charity is part of who they are as opposed to having to kind of motivate them later. But then like, we don't know what their motivation is. We have built it into a habit. And so, you know, does it, does it really matter so much what, what the motivation is? And Rambam has stuff to say about that, about that question too, right? About if you give Sadatha, if you give charity in a sort of unmotivated way, but you do it anyway, like you still get points for giving Sadaka. It's just not as good mm -hmm. as if you do it with an open heart and, you know, full of generosity, but it's still good. Like it's still a good thing to do to give Sadaka. You shouldn't just wait around until your motivations are good before doing good. Yeah. And I think that this teaching seems to be specifically about Chuva not saying there's this is the only kind of good act, but if chuva is a highlighting of where you need to repair something, this is how you have to do it, and you've got to go the distance. You've got to you've got to prove that you're new in this way, or at least make the effort to do that. And I like that the that it's sort of set up by uh, the first thing, which isn't the party, but the the other scene where where they have the the focus group, I guess, and um, oh, this I should have said before, like the where, and the the woman who talks about flying and getting a and and the turkey and like I didn't know where the turkey carcass began ended and I began. Oh. That grossed me out. I did not like. That. <laughs> it was it was delivered with total commitment. That line. It went. And... It, that joke went like a step too far for me. I was like. <laughs> I don't want to think about this anymore. <laughs> okay, we'll rush by that. Anyway, in that focus group, like that's where Eleanor discovers that like apology is not good enough and you know that uh, that it has to be backed up by action that's really substantial and can prove it. And I think actually as you're talking now, I'm realizing that I think in the in the first episode when we had the whole uh, list in the in the in the welcome video from Michael where it describes all the things you get points for, it's very consequentialist and kind of action oriented uh i don't know outcome oriented although now i'm thinking about like there is this things about like attended cousins child's jazz recital or something like that as you got a lot of points for for things like that and so maybe there's some mix up of uh of intention in there 
but maybe what in this particular teaching, maybe what Maimonides is trying to say is that when you're actually in the work of Chuva specifically, your motivation matters. And so it's, you know, it's definitely good for Eleanor to hold the door open. And it's definitely good for her to try to show herself, you know, differently to people. But, but it's a higher, like when you're overcoming your previous wrong, then maybe there's this higher bar that you have to prove. I don't know if that's in the eyes of like the universe or the divine, or, you know, only, or if that's in the eyes of other people too. Like, I think Maimonides maybe is presenting this as sort of between you and eternity. And you know how how God, so to speak, is going to judge you, and uh, and as I say, it's in the episode here uh, when she ever, you know she's oh, she's doing the the Walmart greeter thing and uh, not getting any points. In fact, her points are going down as as she's as she's uh, complaining about it. Well, you you've reminded me of of another line that I didn't write down where. Tahani says, this is Eleanor. She's the Walmart of friends. <laughs> yeah. And then she says, did I use that correctly? <laughs> I don't even know what that would mean exactly, but it was funny. Um, but, you know, I, I guess like I was thinking about when I have a an argument with my spouse, right? Like sometimes I just sort of apologize and move on, even if I'm still think I'm right. And even if I still yeah. like, you know, think that he's wrong, just because like, I don't want to be in a fight anymore. Right. And, and it doesn't feel whatever we were arguing about doesn't feel worth it. Right. To, to continue. And so does that mean I haven't done true chuva because like my motivation is mainly not to be in an argument anymore, but outwardly, like we're fine. And eventually I get over it and I move on and I might still be right, but like, there's no consequence to that. Um, and so I'm, I'm still a little bit stuck on this. Like the only way you achieve to true true to is like through your motivation being correct as opposed to through your actions being correct and and maybe it's just that with Eleanor right she needs to do something major to get herself over her point deficit and it's not as much about motivation as it is about her action which is being willing to sacrifice herself for others Right, which is which is both a motivation and an action, I guess. She was going to turn herself in. She doesn't, but she was going to because she sort of realizes that, as she says, my motivation is corrupt. And so she she has to rethink what her motivation is, but that's not enough. She has to do the action too. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think it's interesting in this Maimonides quote, it's a lot more about sort of holding back from doing something wrong, passing on the opportunity to do something wrong, the next time it comes up and as opposed to maybe actively going out and doing something you forgot to do. I, I keep coming back. I may have mentioned this on a previous episode, like my, my probably biggest annoying interpersonal character weakness is interrupting or not giving people uh, a few seconds to think about what they're going to say after I've said something. Usually this is a member of my family or my household. And so lately I've been trying, I've been noticing like I can sometimes wait what I think is 30 seconds or in my experience, an eternity after I've said something while I try to figure out, did they even hear me? You know, are they thinking? And like, and I know we do studies, especially you, you and I in education, teachers or educators habitually won't even wait like a second for somebody to respond. And so I've been trying to teach myself to, to do that. Now, do I think I should wait 60 seconds? I don't think I should have to wait 60 seconds for somebody to answer me as we're talking like in the kitchen, but I do because I know that that's part of my 
character improvement process is to go that is to go that length. Um, but I'm not sure that that's incredibly profound uh, in the in the wider many points. That might get me five points. I'm not sure that's going to get me. 10 the 10,000 I'm going to need <laughs> for the good place. And I don't know, you know, there's so much and we'll I'll talk about this in a minute about mixed motivation, but I do like the idea of the possibility of there being moments of pure motivation because I think Maimonides may be talking about that. And the time I was deciding to become a rabbi was the same time I was getting my immersion in social science, which is more and more clouded up the idea that we ever have free will at all. And so I like this notion that there is such a thing as a moment of a free choice that where we at least step back from our other motivations and kind of say, no, I'm going to do this because I don't like the idea that there are other things that we're not even aware of that are that are influencing our actions and that that's the whole picture. I'm not sure that I've ever had many of these moments of profound free choice. I don't know. Do you have a thought about that? You don't have to have a thought about that. <laughs> I have many thoughts yeah. About, yeah. about that. I guess the thing that I was thinking about as you were talking a little bit is, and I, I'm not 100% sure that this is connected or whether I was having this thought before you started talking, which is, let's say Eleanor's motivation is completely pure and it's just to save her friend, she's going to sacrifice herself. Like, is that a thing we're obligated to do or to consider? And when she steals the train and goes to the medium place, that's self-preservation, right? She, she, is, she is preserving herself from an eternity of suffering. And is she really, like, are we really gonna argue that she's obligated to go to the bad place in order to save her friends? Hmm. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't have a good answer to that. Right. But if we have like pure free will, I don't know that anybody chooses to go to the bad place. Yeah. So let's let's fill out the picture with what I think actually is much more the typical Jewish Talmudic view about motivation. And for me, the classic place it comes up is is in the Mishnah commenting on some people will be familiar with this prayer, the Shema, that is uh kind of a central prayer in which which we recite actually out of the the Torah. And there's this line, you should love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might or all your something. Bechol levavcha is the, the term in Hebrew. And the Mishnah says, what does all of your heart mean? Why doesn't it just say love with your heart? And the answer is with your two natures, your good nature and your bad nature, the, what in Hebrew are called the Yetzer Tov and the Yetzer Ra. And the idea is that, that and this is really all throughout uh, Talmudic psychology, that our hearts are divided typ typically between the, the impulses that want us to be good and generous and the impulses that are selfish and greedy. And the rabbis of the Talmud believe that we can totally turn our evil impulses into good action, into even something in this situation that's called love, you know, love directed toward the divine or somehow tapping into the divine, the divine love. I, I come with this in my work a lot because part of the job of being a synagogue rabbi is to be a kind of care provider in different ways. 
And when I do something caring, people will thank me. And I'll find this urge to say, like, you know, you don't have to think like, this is my job. It's what I do. And I might, I'd like to say this is what I do because I'm a Jew, or this is what I do because I'm trying to be a mensch. But I know that I have all these motivations. I want to be good at my job. And part of my job is to show up at the hospital when you're, when you're sick and to, and to actually sit down and spend time with you. I, and, and so the mixture of that's sort of two decent motivations, but also want to be able to go home and, and be thought of as having been a good rabbi. And there's all kinds of complexity in that motivation. And that's even when I'm just trying to do something, you know, pick between sort of really good and kind of pretty good motives. But as I say, this podcast, I would love to be known as the guy who figured out how to use a television show to get lots of Jewish ideas out into the world and to, yeah, get some credit for that. That would be awesome. Well, I give you a lot of credit because you wrangle a bunch of us and you make us sit down and do at an official time, which is like herding cats, I'm sure. <laughs> See, and now I feel bad about that because like, I don't, I don't want credit. I don't, I absolutely want credit and I don't want credit. I don't deserve credit for that. <laughs> it's very difficult. You know, it's, it's interesting that you, that you say that, right? Because we, one of the things we say about Moses is how humble he is. And that's supposed to be one of his great characteristics as the leader of the people is to be humble. And then like you look at what we do to Moses, right? All the time talking about how great he is and what a wonderful leader he is and how, you know, he's the, he's the guy who took us out of Egypt with God, obviously, and led us to the promised land. And he's our number, he's our number one leader, right? The Torah ends by saying never again, was there another one like this? And we also hear about how humble Moses was. And it, it must've been hard for Moses to balance his great and important leadership and his conversations with God and, and the ability to really have so much control over the people with his desire, right? The, the credit and the no credit that we see that a little bit in, in Moses, in the Torah. So see, you're like Moses. Yeah. yeah. So Eleanor, as you were saying, is looking for a pure motivation. Like she can tell when her motivations are not entirely pure, but I think this text would say that, yeah, if you have essentially two motivations, one to try to do the right thing and the other to kind of save your own skin, great, put those things together. If they're pulling in the same direction, that's much more likely to drive you to do the right thing. So I would think that she doesn't have to, right, to me, all the like the effort that she's making, plus then she's gone, okay, so if she if saying a verbal apology isn't enough, she's going to write a handwritten note to everybody. All right, you know that's that's good enough for me. She's uh, I don't I don't I don't. She's I don't very need to see into t-shirts, Eleanor. Lots of t-shirts. <laughs> this is my second t-shirt themed episode. Oh, were you in the 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 uh, t-shirt bitch dress episode? Bitch episode? Yes. Dress bitch, sorry, dress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so yeah, you're right. How extreme do you have to go to? You know, I like mixed motivations a lot. You know, Chidi actually gives the the opposite. I, I was first thinking this is a little forced, but now I'm thinking it's it's a good counterpoint. Chidi, uh, Chidi's like, I'm not sure, like, I'm supposed to love this person. I should have the right motive for loving this person, which of course isn't how entirely how love works, but he can't get out of that. He has to like assess his motivation to be in love. Chidi is um, uh, like purity of motivation is once again his his kind of downfall here. He can't get anywhere because he won't try, he won't try anything. And Eleanor's oh. trying to trying to do things out of all her parts. Or because she doesn't love real Eleanor. So it's 
you can look at it and say, you know, Chidi's paralyzed by indecision because he wants to pick apart his motivation. Or you can say he doesn't love real Eleanor, so he can't tell her that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he also we also know that he has an aversion to lying. And so even if he can't articulate that he he doesn't love her. And Kristen Bell Eleanor says, she's your soulmate, right? She's universe approved. <laughs> um, just tell her you love her. And in some ways, like Eleanor is so generous with her feelings and with her emotions and with everything that sh- that is going on with her. And Chidi is so closed up. But I-, I think, you know, I mean, again, this is my knowledge of the rest of the show, but I think part of the reason that Chidi can't tell real Eleanor that he loves her is because he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what you're saying about, about our Eleanor being you know, more accessible to all her own emotions. I think that's the idea of all your heart, that whatever she's got, she can bring to this occasion. And she starts with, you know, I'm going to be nice to every one of these goobers. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I mean, that's, it takes her to make, you know, to say something snide and snarky just to get her off the ground and then lose a few points and then like off she goes. But I really like the picture of human nature where we use the negative emotions maybe to, to do something good. And now I'll say something, you know, nice about myself. Like one thing that this podcast has done, which again, may have started out of semi corrupt motivations, is I've learned a bunch of stuff. And I've gotten together with these teachers who've been teaching me things. And I've actually learned a bunch of Torah. And that's, that's good. And I've like made time in my week to do something that, you know, has been on my list for a long time. And I I think that's positive, but it definitely came out of mixed intentions at the start. One of, one of the things we often discuss with our teens is you're on the board of a charity and, you know, someone who does something really evil, right? We use the Sackler family as an example, right? Mm-hmm. Comes to give you money. Like, can you take the money to do good in the world if it comes from an evil source? And I think that's a similar question, right? If you do something good, but your motivation is bad, does that somehow taint the good that you've done in, in the world, right? Think about Tahani. She does a lot of good in the world, but her whole motivation is to like catch up to her sister or get her parents' attention or whatever it is, you know, or to be admired by Brad Pitt or whatever her, you know, whatever <laughs> her, her motivation is. It's not just like selfless love of the world. And, and one of the things we see in Tahani's growth is that she's willing to help Eleanor, not because Eleanor gets her something, but because she starts to consider Eleanor a friend. And you know, this has been, I think, my theme and a lot of the different episodes we've talked about, but they are, in all of our main characters are figuring out how to, how to be better human beings in the good place than they were on earth and how to be in relationship with one another in a way that they were not able to be in relationship with people when they were alive. So in a way, it seems like what we're saying is that having a good motivation isn't mean having only pure motivations, but it means knowing that there is such a thing as like good motivation and trying to bring that into the mix. And, you know, we all need pictures of people who, or pictures of actions that are done mostly for virtuous reasons or out of virtuous motives like that. We have to have that and that kind of um, pulls us in a certain direction. And then later on, we can learn that there are people who have a lot of negative things that are in them too are driven by whether it's ego or narcissism or in some cases i think the the hard things that you're saying are you know even criminal things that have harmed other people whether it's financial or sexual and we have to come to grips with that but i don't think the goal is to put away forever our evil urge our yitzhara i think it's just to to make sure it's not the only thing that's motivating us 
Right, and I, I guess the question is like when Eleanor gets on the train with Janet and Jason, is that really evil? Is preventing herself from going to the bad place really evil? I don't, I don't think it is because I think we do have some, and Judaism will tell you that, right? We have some obligation to preserve our own life. There is a sanctity to my life and to yours as well. And, and it's more complicated because they're all dead, but um, <laughs> to preserve your dead life. Yeah. Um, but, but I do think like, even if Eleanor's motivations are the most pure and that requires her to go to the bad place, is that what we should be advocating for? Pure motivation that leads to eternal suffering for Eleanor, even if it saves other people. And I know eventually we get to the trolley problem and we'll get there in this, in, yeah. an ep- in a future episode, but it, it, it is a question when we think about the, the balance, I guess, between motivation and action. So one of the things that I've been thinking about, it, it just ha- in, in the week or so that we are actually recording this, just a few days ago, our colleague, Rabbi Shai Held, who's just uh, across town from Rebecca in Manhattan, wrote something about how often it is women disproportionately who are asked to perform more extreme acts of self-sacrifice in order to, I guess, demonstrate that they're not self-interested and men aren't held typically to the same standard. Men are allowed to have mixed motives, maybe a lot more. I'm, I'm curious if that resonates at all with you. Yes, I think that's true. And I think, I mean, I don't know how much political discussion you want to get into on this podcast, but I saw this really, I think they've changed it, maddening headline in the New York Times about the abortion case that was being argued by Mississippi. And basically one of Mississippi's arguments is like, well, women can have it all now. So like we, there's no need for abortions because it's so much easier to balance work and family. And, and this idea that women are supposed to perform like really literally in that argument, like sacrifice your bodily autonomy for some kind of vision of a saintly motherhood or something, or having it all or whatever other crap people come up with. I'm not sure what, what words I'm allowed to use on this podcast because I have a lot of four letter ones, but I don't right. know if that's left. Cr- um, what would be the what would be the good place version of croup, right. you know, cr- right. Uh what whatever bullshit reason yeah. they can come up with for uh, this. And and yeah, I mean I think our right that's the challenge of for a lot of women in a lot of ways is you should be this perfect self self-sacrificing mother for your children and also have your job where you no one notices that you have children or or parents to take care of or any other things that you should have to do and I think um Shai held I don't know what his I don't know what prompted him to say that but he's not wrong I don't think mm-hmm. yeah I think he was responding to the fact that there is this trend in religious thought often and it's in particular he was referencing one Jewish Musar teacher, the Mikhtav Me'eliyahu, who was really saying, whenever you're thinking about your own virtue, as you think about doing a good act, that's really a kind of selfishness. And you have to try to get on that and figure out the ways to, to purge that element out of yourself. I have a favorite thing I like to teach when I teach this uh, passage that I was quoting from the Mishnah about your whole heart and the two parts of your heart is this great study that was done 
I think it was in partnership with Hyatt Hotels to give credit where it was due. You know, you go into the hotel and you're given the sign in the bathroom about your towels. You can save water if you don't if you don't wash your towels every day. And they decided to, they made three different conditions. One had the regular sign in it. Another said something like 60% of the people who've been in this hotel have kept their towels off the floor. And another was 60% of the people who've been in your room before you have, you know, thrown your towels in. And the study found that the people who had the sign that said 60% of the people who are in your room acted in this virtuous way were, were the, those are the people who are most likely to keep their towels and preserve water for another day. You're talking about a hotel where you're never going to meet the other people who, are, who stayed in the hotel before you. You have no connection to the person who stayed in the room before. But this idea that you want to kind of look good in front of these hypothetical people who it turned out don't really exist anyway was like a, a motivation and like the payoff on that the saving of water stuff like that is so good <laughs> like i'm i'm all for multiple motivation well i don't know if it's just me or not but like i get paranoid and every time i talk to like a customer service person that that i should be very nice to them because i don't want them to think i'm like me and or a terrible person, even though I'll never see this person again and they're going to go talk to someone else. And are they going to think about me? No, never, never again. But I don't know if that's motivation or paranoia, but also it's good to be nice to customer service people because they have hard jobs. Um, it really is. Well, I have In any situation where I'm going to talk to someone I'm never going to see again or encounter again, I still feel like this motivation, this desire for them to think I'm a nice person or a good person. That is so interesting because I face, I think, the opposite scenario living as the one kippah wearing person in my New Hampshire environment, which is I'm immediately recognizable, you know, as a Jew, whatever I do. So I often talk about how if I cut someone off with a grocery cart in the grocery store, the last thing they're going to see while they're cursing, you know, somebody for bashing into them or nearly so is they're going to see my yarmulke and they say that, you know, that Jew... <laughs> that you almost knock me over in the store or or if I pass like bad behavior on the highway or something like that. And so I actually use that. Like sometimes I think, what's the kippah for? I totally think it's to create an external motivation on myself, which is I also think why I pray as often I do. Like I do, I, I don't trust myself to have enough internal virtuous motivation. And I don't actually think I need it. I think if I can rely on these crutches to uh, reflect it back on me that, that's good. I'm willing to use any source, you know, that I can get. As an educator doing work with teens and younger kids, do you think about this much in any other context than you've mentioned? The the question of of motivation, what I'm trying to do is to teach children good Jewish habits. Things that to to help them find something in Judaism that they connect to or something in Judaism that they might make a regular part of their life because I think that that's a really important skill for them and also a really important skill for them as they become Jewish adults. And so it's not that I don't care what their motivation is. I want their motivation to be like, they want to be Jewish and they want to be in the Jewish community. And I also want things like knowing the words to the Shema or knowing how to shake the Lulav or the blessings for Hanukkah to be such an ingrained part of their life that they never stop doing it. Or even things like giving sadaka or doing community service or visiting the sick, right? Things that, things that I want them to know that these behaviors are Jewish and I do care about their motivation. And I hope that they come to be internally motivated, but I also care about 
kind of building the habit so that it's something that is just part of their life without them necessarily always having to think about it. Mm. I think on another episode, we should talk about the idea of kavana, which we haven't mentioned, which is actually the Hebrew word for intention, which refers often both to intentionality generally, but also mindfulness about the act that you're actually doing. I was thinking about where Jason and Janet fit in to this picture. Jason is so interesting because in a way, he is the one character who has only pure motivations all the time. He wants to be kind. He's very soulful. He always talks about, you know, the life I deserve or the life you deserve. He just has no ability to link his motivations to actual constructive uh, actions. And so he, you know, he turns to Janet at the end and says, you should, you need to not be with me because I'm a, what does he say you are? I'm a, I don't know, whatever. He's, he's a fool. And she, you know, for some reason, Janet looks back at him and, and like, she seems to value the purity of what he's about and reflects that back to him and says that, like, to the point that even she, with her newfound sensitivity to emotions has decided that that she and he have to escape together. Yeah, I think if you ask Janet, she would say like, she doesn't have motivation, right? She's not really programmed that way. She just does whatever you tell her. She has no real independent thought. And one of the things that's coming out in these episodes is just sort of like her evolution towards independent thought and potentially also motivation. So that combined with Jason, who, as you said, just kind of like, doesn't does whatever comes to his mind it's an interesting combination <laughs> but it works for both like humor but also just like really real like good-heartedness their relationship is just so sweet and and beautiful and funny and in a lot of ways very childlike in terms of how how children form relationships with each other we won't give too much away here yeah, and it ties back to what you're saying before about kind of the repeated actions of of younger kids who don't understand fully what they're doing, but you build a basis for for that. And Janet and Jason, in their own ways, make a good case for actions we can recognize as good without having to clarify what the motivations are all the time. If you had to choose between that and Chidi, it's sort of much more appealing to go in that direction. And Eleanor is interesting, you know, because she is this ultimate equilibrium of many, it's much more dynamic with her. She's kind of questioning and reflecting on her actions and her motivations, like more dynamically than probably anybody else is. Even though, as I say, I might think Jewishly, she doesn't have to go to the lengths that she does. It is actually very interesting. I didn't think about it until now that Eleanor seems to be the only one at this stage who's truly questioning their motivation. Chidi and, and Tahani think they belong in the good place. So they don't really question in this. Chidi has all kinds of like indecision and other issues, but it it's it feels different than what Eleanor is doing, which is like a real true self-examination. And Jason doesn't have the skills for self-examination, <laughs> so he does it. And I think later on you start to see this happening to Michael, but not yet. Right. He hasn't gotten there yet. And Eleanor is really the first character who starts to try to understand what are my motivations? What's the connection between my motivation and my actions? And she's asking these very deep and important questions, even if like she's not asking them in the most, in the deepest and most serious way. And that's, I think, a really important way to try to be, even if it's not by some particular formula of how much of that you actually have to do. I, I think I've referred in some previous episodes to 
Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist who I'm a huge fan of, who really, his whole work has been to kind of peel back all the many layers of even where we think we know what we are motivated by. It turns out, often he says, it, our brains just kind of come up later with a reason to how we explain to ourselves why we did something. And, you know, I, I believe all those things are true. As I said, I think I went toward becoming a rabbi the same time I was delighting in these discoveries of social science. But I don't think that means that you can pause in that process and reflect on that. And, and that sometimes you can't sort of change your own inner environment. And, and I like that Eleanor does that, even though, as I say, Jewishly, I don't think she has to risk her own uh, soul. Now, I think in the show, we, we are not really meant to believe that then the next episode or two down, she's going to be, you know, temporarily in the bad place. We've learned that the bad place is, I don't know, flames and shrieks and, or, or I guess I'm thinking of Michael's dissolution of the soul thing with the diamonds and the burning, whatever. <laughs> but um, I think it was also interesting what you said, which is that at some level, she knows that she wants to do this dramatic move. But I think maybe, do you think that she thinks it's going to help her get back to the good place, like eventually, that it's like a, a gamble? I don't know, actually. Like, I don't know. I actually think, like, until she learns about the medium police, she really is prepared to sacrifice herself. Mm. And that's why she sends them all on the ridiculous errands with the with the letters and the shirts. And, and so I do think she's she's prepared to sacrifice herself. And then when she learns about the medium place, she's like, oh, like, this makes so much more sense, right? Like, if I have to pick between good and bad, I guess I'm more bad than good. But if I have an opportunity to pick medium, like a medium, right? She, she, she knows. And I think like we as viewers of the show would concur that she's not all bad. She's really not. And she's not all good either um, as none of us are. And so I think she thinks, okay, well, before I knew about the medium place, it made sense for me to go to the bad place. But now it doesn't make sense for me to go to a place where like, you know, everyone is really, really bad. Yeah, since I mostly watch the show by binging until I think the last season, I don't understand how people can watch it one at a time. You know, they're they're not that long and you just get so sucked into the next one. And this has been kind of a series. I think the last one, Chidi's Choice, and this one and the Medium Place are like a cluster of three, which are like so awesome together. All right. Well, Rebecca, great to talk to you once again. We are heading for the end of season one. I can't believe it. And uh, as I said, we've got some kinds of special wrap ups that we're trying to figure out how to do. I will just tease that I had a conversation earlier this week with a 13 year old named Jesse from New York City, who recently became bar mitzvah and wrote his Devar Torah, his Torah teaching for his synagogue, using the good place to interpret uh, a Torah portion in Genesis. And I'm really excited to uh, have him on in some fashion to read some of what he says and to talk about how he got into the good place as about a 10 year old and how he's thinking about all this. And next time we're going to have Sari Laufer on to talk about, uh, she has been wanting to talk about Mindy St. Clair. And I think the idea of, of the medium place for weeks and weeks and weeks. So stay tuned. Great to talk to you again, Rebecca. Well, as always, great to talk to you, John. And great to have you, the listeners, with us for another episode of Tove. If you're finding our podcast worthwhile, tell other people about it and give us a good rating or a share on social media. 
You can find our show notes with things like definitions of Hebrew terms we used or who Maimonides is, as well as the source texts we discussed, all at tovegoodplace.com. You can interact with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at tovegoodplace. Or drop a note with a thought or a question to tove at tovegoodplace.com. I'm John Spira-Savet, at RabbiJS3, and I have a website and periodic blog of my own, RabbiJohn.net. Rebecca Rosenthal is on Instagram, at RabbiRebeccaBakes. Once again, thanks for spending this time with us. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.